0: turns it from this lonely, confusing headache into the most fulfilling and easy project. Go to the link in my show notes to get a free trial on me. This is Jash Mehta for Female Startup Club. Hello and welcome back to the show. It's Dune here, your host and hype girl. Today on the show, we're learning from Jash Mehta, founder of Pop and Bottle. Pop and Bottle was inspired when Jash and her close friend Blair made the move from London to California and had a meeting for their daily ritual, the morning latte. As coffee lovers who also prioritized health, the two friends asked themselves why nothing on the grocery store shelves met their standards. The clean label, dairy free, no refined sugar and organic. Josh co-founded Pop and Bottle from a genuine desire to create quality coffee and tea beverages that she wanted in her own life and make them available to the millions of people who share in her passion for clean, healthy, high-integrity products. In this episode, we talk through her early blueprint, which is still super relevant to today, and how she expanded from 30 stores to 100 stores. And then on to 10,000 stores. So if you're in the food and beverage industry, grab your pen and paper and settle in for an episode that is packed with so many valuable insights. Ah, I'm so excited for you. And today is your last chance to join us inside magic before we close the doors to founding members and go back to our regular pricing. It's inside magic that you can meet women like Jash and ask direct questions in an intimate setting. You can connect with other founders who are pre-launch or in the early stages of building their brand and access tons of resources and SOPs and frameworks that you can implement into your life and business today. So if you've been excited about joining us, go to femalestartupclub.com forward slash magic with a J. And when you sign up, you'll be prompted to book in your one-on-one call with me so I can get to know you better. But for now, let's get into this episode. This is Josh for Female Startup Club. I'm
1: Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds.
1: Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
0: Josh, hi. Welcome to the Female Startup Club podcast. Hi,
4: dude. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: I'm so excited to be here. You're tuning in from San Francisco today. What's it like?
4: I am. Um, despite my English accent, I'm actually in San Francisco. I've been here for 10 years.
0: Um, it is
4: cold, but still beautiful today.
0: Still beautiful. Have you got any wins or oh shit moments that you want to share, vent, rant about?
4: <laughs> um, I'm sure I will as we get, as we get into this discussion, but um, no, it's a good day. It's the afternoon. It's a nice, beautiful day. I have a great view outside my window. And yeah, I'm excited to chat
0: to you. Amazing. For anyone who might not know who you are yet, do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction into who you are and what the brand is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Jash
4: Mehta. Um, I'm CEO and co founder of an organic plant based last brand called Pop and Bottle. Um, we're available in the US and thousands of grocery stores like Whole Foods and Walmart and Sprouts um and um we've been going for about seven years now I started with my co-founder and yeah it's been a beautiful challenging interesting fun terrifying journey um and uh yeah I love what I do.
0: As it always is it's a roller coaster (laughs) so I'm told. It's a roller coaster. (laughs) (laughs) So I've heard. As you know. (laughs) As I know yeah. (laughs) Where do you like to start your story? I know you launched around 2015 but Where does kind of the light bulb moment happen for you and your co founder? And what is that early kind of moment into starting Pop and Bottle?
4: Yeah. um, It's so interesting looking back because I think in any journey, you have these pivotal moments. And we've definitely had, you know, over the last seven years, we've definitely had several of them. And each one has kind of taken the business into a different trajectory. And so we started in 2015 in that bootstrapped, very organic, very steep learning curve I mean the learning curve still steep but it but it was kind of very hands-on back then that was kind of phase one of the business and then it kind of moved into the next phase where we had a few more resources etc cetera, etc cetera, et cetera. but I can start in the bootstrap phase because I think I think that's the most interesting and um, let's
0: start there we love that phase <laughs>
4: yeah yeah and I could help. I like, can kind of help start with you know why we how we got into this and why we do what we do and what that looked like so um you know, for me personally, um, I was coming at entrepreneurship from the personal journey of seeing my mom being an entrepreneur my whole life. So, and I know, I know you have kind of a similar story. Um, my mom was a kind of a big part of the role model that showed me what it was, what it looked like to have a female leader, a female business owner. So, always, I knew I had that entrepreneurship gene in me, and I was coming to the table with that from a young age. Um, but I just didn't know what that looked like. What was the business? Where did I want to spend my time? And there's a little bit of serendipity, actually, in the way we started. Um, I moved to San Francisco um, in my 20s for personal reasons, uh, so it's a big move from London. And I moved to a city which was, you know, 80% tech scene, um, but actually the, the part that drew me in was not the tech industry, it was the food industry. And, um, you know, London being a big city, great food scene, but um, but removed from kind of the agricultural farm-to-table aspect of, of food, and that's, that's where I... That's what I saw when I came to California. So I arrived and suddenly, um, there was all this beautiful farm to table eating that I was experiencing. There were these beautiful California farmer's markets where I was buying my produce. Um, The grocery stores were these amazing health food stores, selling things I'd never heard of. And it was just such an interesting kind of facet of California living that really captured me in. And and it really started my interest in wellness and, and healthy eating. The serendipity of the story is that my co-founder, who um, was one of my best friends, um, happened to move to San Francisco for totally different reasons within six months of when I moved. So suddenly I arrived here, I'd left my career behind, and I had a a space of time in kind of my career journey that was a break. Um, And it was a forced break um, because I I moved. Um, But it was such a great time to just slow down and... Uh, experience this new place, get to know it, explore my passions, and do it with a friend. Um, he was a very good friend, and so it started completely passion-based. We we loved health and wellness. We started eating at these restaurants together. We started kind of um, jumping into a plant-based diet, seeing what that did to our bodies, how it felt. Going to health food stores and understanding these ingredients and what they mean. Watching documentaries and yeah, it was just a kind of a really fun period of exploration, and then. We would meet for coffee. We'd meet every day for coffee and talk about X, Y, Z that we'd learn or X, Y, Z that we were interested in. And suddenly we kind of realized that, you know, we've been putting wellness into every aspect of our lives and seeing how that felt. But this daily ritual that we loved, this, this daily uh, activity that we did that was social, that we met, you know, it was, co- it was community driven. We'd meet every day wasn't actually very healthy and especially you know especially seven years ago when um it was a lot harder to find great plant-based options and um you know you'd go for coffee and it would mostly be dairy there's lots of added sugar and lattes it was very hard to find organic coffee it was very hard to find tea-based options and suddenly we kind of had this moment where we wanted this ritual that we loved to just be more healthful And we noticed that particularly um, in the grocery store space. So yes, you could go to your local coffee shop and craft something that was to your taste. But if you went to a grocery store, coffee coffee in the grocery store was really about hypercaffeination. It was more energy. um, It wasn't about ritual. It wasn't about delight. It wasn't about wellness. And we just we we noticed that white space and it was something we were doing every day. And that was really kind of a light bulb moment. Um, We wanted to craft something that was delightful and delicious and and healthful for us and build a beautiful brand around it that was meaningful to us and meaningful to others. So that was really the moment that kind of started us on this journey. Um, The reality of it is that we had no food background, no beverage background, no CPG background. Um, My co-founder was from a design background. I had an operational business background. And so we were coming at this industry really naive. And I think that has definitely its benefits. It has its challenges. You know, we have to learn a lot in a short period of time. But it has its benefits. Uh, you know, I think if we knew more, we we maybe wouldn't have jumped into it as hard as well. You
0: might not have started.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that, that's kind of how it started. And, and we really started small. We wanted to test the concept. Um, we had no idea, did other people want this? Um, would they pay for it? Would they buy it twice? Um, would the decision maker in the grocery store, you know, think this is a good idea, would they make space on their shelves for it? And so there was a lot to learn and a lot to test. And our goal, so the first milestone really was just let's figure out how to make this in a way that is you know, commercially viable and then uh, let's get it into 20, 30 stores and see what happens. The process of selling it was us literally going to these little grocery stores asking to speak to the manager or the buyer and saying, Hey, this is what we make. Um, we should be interested in this. What's your feedback? And, um, and we learned a lot doing that.
0: And so at that time you're on this kind of forced break because you've moved, are you also going back into the industry or are you kind of like, let's see how we go. And you are actually starting this business full time with the intention of just sticking with it full time.
4: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I was giving myself about six months to kind of figure out what life in California looked like for me. And so I think that's really in some ways important because we're all on this treadmill, right? It's like, we're doing this and, then we're, doing this and we're doing this and we're doing this and we want to be here by this age and you know, whatever that looks like. And, I, and it's rare that we intentionally take a break in our lives. And I think for those who do, it's so wise. Um, but for me, it wasn't, it wasn't so intentional and it was kind of forced because I'd moved, but it gave me this like period of time to just slow down and, Really be intentional about what I wanted to do next. And for me at the time, it was the two options for me were I'm, I'm going to go join a company and kind of further my skill set. And it was an exciting time to join tech and other things in San Francisco. Or it was like, actually, this is the perfect time to really think about if I do want to uh, start a business and what that looked like for me. And I gave myself a period of time to test and learn and. Take some shots on goal and see what happened and what landed. Um, and it was a very appropriate period of time to, you know, if things didn't work, if it didn't feel right, if my co-founder was not working in it, you know, we had a great friendship, but maybe it wouldn't translate to a business partnership. It was just kind of a great time to test all of those things. And so, yeah, it was very open ended. Like, let's try this. Let's see what happens. If we get to that next milestone, we'll keep going. And that has been the story of the last seven years.
0: I love that. And just to further paint the picture, are you like making these products at home or are you immediately kind of, you found a commercial kitchen? Like what's the setup in those early bootstrapping moments?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Let me paint, let me paint some color. Paint the picture. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So at the beginning, we're doing all the R and D in my little apartment in San Francisco. Um, And uh, we bought a Vitamix that, uh, the first investment we made is a thousand dollars in a Vitamix, um, you know, our, our fancy blender. And, um, that was, that was kind of our big R and D purchase. And. Wish I had one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love those. They, they're great. It, still, it still works. It's still, it's in the museum of P&B. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was at this point, just the earliest form of an idea really. Um, but we would, you know, recipes we were, were making our homemade plant-based milks we were, we were you know literally making almond milk in our kitchen we weren't selling it but we were just we were doing all the r&d and r&d is you know very basic at this point and that's kind of how it started we didn't we didn't go any further until we had an assemblance of a product that someone could taste you know be it friends and family someone could taste and just give us feedback we did that for a little while until we had um I I believe it was five different products that we had got to a point where we thought this is delicious we love this we have a recipe that um we would buy at least every day let's see if it lands with others I think it was Blair's birthday in that year that we decided to have a friends and family tasting um and we invited 30 of our close friends and family we had these big giant vats of Um, lattes in different flavors and we set them up we made it look beautiful and uh, we had an ipad and uh, a google form and we basically put together a questionnaire um tell us what's your favorite tell us what you liked what you didn't like would you buy the skin how much would you pay just kind of basic questions to our audience of 30 friends And, and in exchange you know come hang out with us, we'll serve you breakfast, Um, we'll have a good time. We'll celebrate Blair's birthday, et cetera, et cetera. So that was kind of our first piece of feedback, our kind of first product trial, you know, in a safe environment um, with our friends. And then we use that to decide on three products. We're like, we we have five that we love. We can't launch five. It takes too many resources, it's too expensive. Nobody's gonna give us five SKUs of shelf space in a grocery store. So let's use this exercise to pick the best three. really focus on those so we used the results of our little mocked up survey and we landed on three that we loved and and that had the best feedback and so that's kind of the R&D stage um once we've gone from there then it was really we, we had to learn about the regulation the licensing we got food service license ourselves and then we found a commercial kitchen um not too far outside of San Francisco um where we could um rent by the hour on the weekends and um and physically make the product ourselves um so what the working week looked like in those early days for us is monday to friday we would sell market you know work on strategy uh design packaging like all of those great things and then on the weekend we would run production um and we would work in the commercial kitchen make the product mondays we would deliver everything and tuesdays to fridays we would do everything else
0: what kind of like amount of money did you invest in that early stage to getting you to kind of like, you know, launch, I guess, where you have like those three products you've kind of invested in the, like the, the, I don't know, the setup of the company, the hiring of the commercial kitchen, getting licensed, that kind of thing. Like if you had to put a ballpark figure on the investment.
4: Yeah, it was about $10,000. Um, so my co-founder and I both put about half of that in. Um and that was enough to get us on the ground, which, you know, just sound, might sound a lot to some, might sound not very much to others. Um, for us, you know, at the time it was it was the amount that we were comfortable um, putting in to invest and really give it a little bit of a go, um, but that felt comfortable to us. And um, and it was enough for us to invest in our first round of packaging, do the business startup costs, the licensing, the regulation, um, and, um, you know, produce our first round of products essentially.
0: And at that time, you know, you were obviously kind of going into this with the idea that you would see how it goes, bootstrap the business, but at some point you raise money. And I don't want to skip ahead too far in the process, but for you, I think it's an interesting um, moment to talk about because a lot of people kind of want to raise straight out of the gate. They want to raise early on and, and go right into it and think that that's the answer. But Oftentimes, bootstrapping it until you get to a point where you have to raise out of desperation or out of the need to scale or expand, you know, comes along. For you, were you ever thinking about raising at that point or what was that kind of like mental mindset around the bootstrapping to fundraising path?
4: You know, there's so many ways to do this, and when I look back, um, I don't know if we did it exactly right, but I also don't know if we were going to do it again. We, whether we do it differently, it was kind of the path we chose, and it, you know, it worked. We've we've got here, but um, but it probably slowed things down for sure. Um, so I think that's always the trade off. You know, resources always can help speed things up, um, but resources obviously come at a price, and so you know, what is the right pace for you? And um and how much are you willing to you know give away in terms of equity or whatever it is to make that work. Um for us, kind of going back to us not being from the industry um and, and you know the naivety that we talked about, I don't think that we really knew what it looked like to do this in a way that was really expedited. Um, you know, if if I was doing it again, now I really understand I've zoomed out enough that I know that if I was to zoom back in, um I know how to do things a lot faster and I understand how to scale things a lot faster. But the, at the time we didn't know that and it's really important to us to get our hands dirty and learn. So we weren't looking to raise out the gate because we didn't. We needed to have the confidence in ourselves and in the product to know that, you know, if we, before we go out and ask others to support this, um, we need to know what we're doing. We need to know that we have X amount of data that we understand what this looks like, that we have some metrics to show, et cetera, et cetera. And that took a little bit of time. Um, So we're bootstrapped for um, a period of time. But ultimately, it was also very apparent reasonably early on that we wouldn't really be able to be bootstrapped for that long unless we wanted this business to be, you know, very, very localised. I think um, if the ambitions were to do this kind of within a tight geography of San Francisco and do it in a very localised way, I think that we could have continued down that path. Um, But I think there's a philosophical question that we had to ask us, which was, you know, why are we doing this? You know, what's the what's the north star? And if the north star is to build this brand that touches a large geography of people, um, then we're going to have to raise some capital. We're, we're going to need some support. Um, and um, you know, it's it's not a cheap business to build. You know, when you really you know, you need scale in order to really build this uh, out of geography that is meaningful. And so it was very apparent reasonably early that we would need to raise funding if, if that was the ambition. Um, and it, and it, it wasn't necessarily obvious to us that that was the ambition day one. You know, it, it came with a few months of seeing the product sell, getting feedback and building our own confidence. Um, you know, it's really the customer telling us, we should have bigger ambitions for this because actually we do want it. Um, and then as we slowly increased our geography, it started to work in a in a bigger scale, in a bigger geography. And it's really been that process of feedback and those mini successes that have given us the confidence to go a little bit broader in our ambition.
0: Mm, gosh, I love that. And I think it's, you know, it's such an important point you touched on, which is you really do need to prove out your concept first in the market to get that metric and data kind of, analysis so that you can then figure out what the North Star is and what you want to do with it. Because obviously if the market isn't ready for that product or it's not quite right, then you don't want to invest money kind of that can go down the drain when you need to jiggle things to to prove it out. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really rare that you put something out in the
4: world and you've nailed every single thing the first time around, right? Like I think some people might be extraordinary app product and design thinking to be able to do that but the reality is that you really need a bunch of touch points a bunch of people to experience a product with different preferences or you know whatever it is to help you shape what is wanted of you in the world and it's really healthy I think to be open to pivoting in those early days I think if you're too much of a perfectionist about that or you're too attached to that you know very first version that you made with your Vitamix in the kitchen then you, there might be a missed opportunity so giving that giving yourself that time um, and being open to you know a potential pivot or the market guiding you uh, you know for us was definitely really helpful.
0: Was there a lot of change in the beginning based on the feedback like what were some of the things that people you know were telling you we need it to be this or we need it to be that?
4: Yeah um Yes and no, I think one of the biggest ones that was but it was probably the most transformative for our business was um, this idea of really zeroing in on a few products that resonated the best. And so I, I kind of alluded to this in, you know, we had five recipes, we landed we launched with three. That sounds very small, uh, but it was actually very, very important when you're starting a small business and you have limited resources. But the biggest thing about That was not just, you know, which of the three that tastes the best, but it was really helping us better understand what problem we were solving for the world or, you know, or for our friends or for our San Francisco community, whatever that was. And what we realised is, so I'll give a very specific example in in our case. Um, We had a selection of products that were coffee, tea and and uncaffeinated. Um, We loved all of them. We used them at different points of the day. But as we looked at some of the early data and got the early feedback, the ones that were resonating the best were the ones that were taking the place in someone's life of their coffee. You know, it was the caffeinated, ritualistic products of the bunch. And so that's where we started. Um, And that really helped us zero in on the fact that, well, who are we? We're, We're a latte brand. That's what we want to be. And that's what we want to do really, really well. And that's what we want to be known for. And Zeroing in on that was very helpful. Um, it was really helpful um, so that we could focus on a limited number of products. It was very helpful because we could very clearly articulate from a brand and marketing perspective what we were selling and and what we were um, hoping to improve for someone's lives. And so that you know that was an example of not necessarily a pivot, but a but a zooming in on one specific thing that we could be good at.
0: Yes, very clear messaging. Very like similar target profile for who you're trying to reach stacking your marketing. I totally get Mm -hmm. it. That's amazing. Mm And so for you, I want to talk about that like early period because you mentioned that in the beginning, you know, your goal was to kind of like get into 20 or 30, you know, mom and pop style shops, see how it's going. And the blueprint for that is, you know, from what I hear quite, you know, it's obvious. You go and knock on everyone's doors, you get people to try your product, you get some orders in and rinse and repeat until you have those 30 stores. But from there, like the 30 stores, how do you get to like, a thousand customers, whether that is directly through the website or whether that is, you know, more retailers, what's that next phase of expansion for you to get to that first thousand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you had to summarise. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, it's, it's a great question and
4: it, you know, it was it was not linear, you know, it was like up and down. Um, well, one thing for us, um, which is specific to our business, is at the time, um, our products were all perishable. Um, we've expanded our portfolio since then, and that's a little different today. But, um, but back then, you know, we had a small selection of products, and they were all perishable. So that actually, in some ways, did a little bit of focusing for us in terms of our channel strategy. So we couldn't really sell online because it was a very perishable product we couldn't ship. So that, that ruled out... Dutch Tumor was taking off, but we couldn't be a part of it because that was not um, something that fit our product. Um, so we kind of were limited by the distribution that our pressure products enabled us to do, and that really meant focusing on grocery. And um, and so that's what we did. We we had our thirty stores of data. Um, it was strong, and we used that data to then try and get the next a hundred stores. And for us, the thirty stores, like you said, they were mom and pops. They were independents. Maybe a two two-chain store, a three-store, excuse me, a three-store chain, Uh, but it wasn't more than that. For us, the kind of next ambition was to be in in Whole Foods. It was, you know, a very important natural food store um, where we could get our products into kind of the 30 to 40-store regional launch um, and give us the opportunity to really test it at a wider market, and that would have been kind of the 100-store range. So it went from pitching individual stores one by one the buyers in the store. You walk through the door. You make an appointment, and you drop off. You physically drop off product to then trying to um, get an appointment with Whole Foods corporate and get their attention and get that opportunity. And and that was what took us to the hundred dollars. And the way that that happened is really just a lot of a lot of reaching out, a lot of persistence. Um, finally, um, the forager in Whole Foods That's a there's kind of a forager program where. Uh, They look to promote locally produced products. And so we learned about this program. uh, You know, we fit the criteria and we met the the local forager. And I still remember that meeting, going to their corporate office. It's very exciting, We're very nervous. Um, But we were authentic and they were looking for authentic stories. Uh, One of the missions of that program was to support local food entrepreneurs. And that's exactly who we were. So we told our authentic story, he liked the taste of the product. He understood the right space that we were operating in and he didn't have anything that that close to it in his stores. So he gave us a chance and that took us to the hundred store mark, but really our first chain. And that gave our brand and our product legitimacy. And once we had that legitimacy, then suddenly we had a case, a successful case study in a reputable larger retailer that we could then take to others. And, you know, that was a billboard for us to be in Whole Foods and that credibility and and other people seeing it there, and um, that helped open the doors to more conversations with other with other stores, with other grocery retailers. Um, so that was kind of definitely a tipping point for us.
0: And is that in parallel where you kind of needed to raise capital? Because I imagine maybe 20 to 30 stores you can maybe manage, you know, on a very lean team, mm-hmm. yeah. but... <laughs> Scaling yeah. into a hundred is a lot.
4: <laughs> yeah, totally. Um,
0: and like production changes significantly yes. from being like you making it on the weekends to being like, we need to outsource this.
4: Yeah, totally. Um, no, you're exactly right. That was almost hand in hand
0: um, with that wider launch um, in Foods
4: was the upsizing of our production situation. So um, we raised some capital and we were doing this kind of in parallel. Um, so we are selling, raise, raising money producing on the weekends, you know, it was a lot, but it was exciting and and we were seeing progress. Um, So we kind of, we started raising our uh, first small seed round. We were supported by friends and family and a few other investors, Um, but it was enough to get us to that next hurdle of needing a bigger commercial kitchen where we ran production every day that we kind of owned and operated and where we could hire a production manager. Um, Our first big hire was our production manager I remember meeting um, another entrepreneur back then, you know, who was a few years ahead of us in the food space. And the biggest piece of advice she gave us is you need, you need to both get yourselves out of the kitchen. Um, you know, you need to, if you're really going to scale this, you need to bring in someone who knows how to do that, do that really well, so that you can really focus your time and attention to everything else. And um, that was such an important step for us to take. And we really needed capital in order to do that. So finding that right hire, finding commercial kitchen space that would work for us, that could really allow us to be to grow for another year, year and a half at least. That started to inform, those types of things started to inform how much capital we wanted to raise. And yeah, we were doing these things simultaneously. It wasn't sequential, I would say. So um, I think that's an important thing to, to know because had it been, it would have been very difficult to make progress. But we kind of needed to have confidence that okay, we need to raise X. We've got 20% of that committed so far, but we don't have time to wait till we have the full 100. We need to keep going and taking steps in this direction. So, you know, there's a leap of faith and confidence that we will continue raising this and we will we will raise this money um, while we do all of these things in parallel to secure the space, to secure the hire, et cetera, et cetera. So um, uh, it was all kind of happening at the same time.
0: And even... More at the same time, I imagine that your marketing is also evolving from being, you know, pounding the pavement, door knocking to kind of how do we reach more people and get more attention and a spotlight on us? What were you doing marketing wise? Were you focusing on influencers or PR or paid ads? What was the kind of um, evolution on that side of things?
4: Yeah. um, So this was very bootstrapped and um, we needed every you know at the time and even when we had some funding we needed every dollar to go back into producing the product um working capital investing in packaging operating our 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 kitchen and so at the end of the day there was very little left to to really invest in marketing in a very intentional way and so it had to be quite bootstrapped and quite grassroots but I think that that also was an absolute blessing um it gave us an opportunity to try different things and see what worked and see what landed. Um, but it also really added to the authenticity of the brand, which I think was really important. The one thing we knew, and you know, we knew it to begin with, but it was really evident as we started to grow, was that in a world with, where you have very few marketing dollars, the best thing to invest in is your product. It's really hard to acquire new customers, but when you do, you want them to be repeat purchases. And you want them to be advocates of your product. You want them to come back. You want them to spread the word. So making sure that the product is right, that the pricing is right, that the packaging is good and friendly and appropriate. um, Those are really, really important things to invest in. And that's a very, very important part of marketing. Um, That really is stage one, I would say, of kind of what it took for us to be successful. So we invested everything we could in the product you know it is the cap i remember one time um we were just we were not having the caps they were hard to open and they were creating some frustration and we spent time fixing you know investing money on fixing the cap to find something that was just like a lot more user friendly and putting money there instead of putting it somewhere else um because we knew that, that was a really important part of the experience so i'd say yes in the beginning days really getting the product right really getting the brand right I alluded to this before, but we didn't have cash to put in paid ads or other things, but um, we did know that once our product lands on the shelf, that's a huge billboard for who we are. Um, you know, a customer has takes seconds only, uh, you know, only seconds of attention when they walk in a grocery store. The beverage aisles are particularly um, busy, and there's so many options and so many colors and so many things going on, so much messaging, how can we use that little bit of real estate that we're, we're going to get no matter what, if we get into the store, how can we use that valuable piece of real estate to stand out above all else? And my co-founder had a design background. Um, it was not a CPG design background, but it was a, and it, it, again, it that was fantastic because she's not from the industry. So she kind of applied more of her uh, fashion design background with a food lens and our packaging, which was completely designed internally, led by her, was so simple that it stood out, where everyone else was shouting about their product. We were telling the customer, this is a very simple, clean product by the lack of messaging on the packaging and letting that simplicity really stand out. We picked really approachable pastel colors. We had really refined text. Um, and it was an elegant, simple product inside and out, and the packaging really spoke volumes. It got the attention. It encouraged people to try, and the product was good enough that um, when they tried, they came back. And that was really the beginning of the flywheel that started to work for us. Once we had a little bit of more capital to start to think about more of a comprehensive marketing plan, um, we we leaned on it, leaned in on social media and you know, Instagram in particular, which back then was you know really the it was in its infancy in terms of how brands were using it, so um, it was not focused on paid advertising at the time as much. It was really about, you know, community voices, getting recommendations from friends, and getting recommendations from kind of the early influencers of the platforms. And uh, we sent our product. Uh, we never paid. We couldn't afford to do that. But again, letting the product speak for itself and having confidence in the product, we would send the product to uh, wellness influencers. We'd write to them ourselves as part of kind of, again, the authenticity piece um, and build a relationship. But if they're interested in receiving some product, um, we'd, we'd send them some and you know hope that if they liked it, they would share it. And, and that started to create a little bit of flywheel, too. So those two things, the, the billboards in the store and the kind of authentic grassroots reach out. Those are the two things that we kind of leaned on in those early days to start to get the word out.
0: Do you think that for anyone listening who might be in the food and beverage industry and they're following a similar blueprint because, you know, low kind of budget, bootstrapped, but knowing that the landscape has changed so much with social media, you know, everything is saturated, every influencer is like promoting a million different products, if you were to start this same business tomorrow again on a low budget and you have those kind of, you know, first doors that you've already put in the hard like pounding the pavement work. Where would you kind of, what would you focus on as a channel today? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I, I, I still think about this because, you know, even for us as these
4: platforms have become saturated, you know, it becomes harder to, to do exactly that. And I think it's, you know, it's even harder if you're brand new, but it's harder even if you're a few years down the road. And I think zooming out from that question, asking yourself, and I think I would ask myself, what's the community that we're trying to build and what's the most micro version of that so when you don't have a large platform to reach everyone how can you find a small platform but really go deep with a with micro community um for us you know it's it's wellness it's women it's coffee it's tea it's mums who need a lot of coffee <laughs> um and, re- and really kind of drilling down to those micro communities i think that a genuinely great product or service that is suited to a micro-community that is solving a real problem will resonate and will break through the noise, um, even in an increasingly noisier world. And sometimes I think just looking at that landscape and finding those grassroots opportunities to connect with that audience, I think they still exist. And again, going back to the point I made earlier, which is that sometimes having less resources actually is a good thing when you have a lot of resources, you might choose to do things bigger and broader. When you have these less resources, you take it down to the most simplest form, those three products, that small community, that small geography, whatever it is. And um, and I I think that that still exists today. If it's a, whether it's something in person or online, blogger communities, um, newsletter communities, in-person wellness events, Um, all of these types of things where there's still connections being made and people are looking for, you know, still great products that suit their lives, I think the opportunity still exists.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Gosh, for anyone in the food and beverage industry, what would your kind of key piece of advice be?
4: (sighs) Great question. Um, (laughs) So many things come to mind, but... One is just a little bit more philosophical um, and that's every, every industry is, is tough and food and beverage is no different. Uh, margins are tight. Um, they're often perishable, that there's large startup costs sometimes. Like it, it's just, it's a hard road. And one thing that has been really helpful to me, and I think this applies to not just food and beverage, it applies to a lot of different industries, but, I know that we wouldn't have got here today if it weren't for this, is just having the support system to kind of get you through the journey. And for me, I had my co-founder, but not just my co-founder. I I built a network of people that could help fill in the gaps where I didn't know what I was doing in this industry. And, you know, great other founders who had been there and were willing to have a coffee with me, Um, industry people who probably felt sorry for us <laughs> and were willing to, you know, listen, listen to, you know, give us some advice, um, give us an introduction to someone, whatever that support system, you, know, you look at your skill set, you look at the resources you have and thinking about you know, where the gaps are and figuring out how to supplement those gaps with support. So, uh, for me, I had a lot of kind of mental support in having a co-founder. When you're having a bad day, they're having a good day. They put, they pull you through and vice versa but then also kind of the knowledge gaps um, finding those right people to kind of plug those in. I think that that's really important. It can feel very lonely um, being an entrepreneur, um, any kind of entrepreneur, um, but it doesn't have to be. And I think in today's day more than ever, there's just so much support out there. If you prioritize creating that support system, that support network, when you're wearing so many hats, that can sometimes take the back seat, um, but it's something so worth prioritizing because that's likely the thing that kind of gets you to that next place is just having that support network um, mm-hmm. to get you there.
0: Mm, absolutely. For anyone listening, we, we do have a private network for founders called Magic with a J. You should come and check it out. <laughs> Shameless <laughs> plug. Where is the business today? What, like paint the picture. What has it grown into? How many retailers are you stocked in? You know, who's on the team? What can you shout about? What's coming up? yeah um
4: we have a long way to go but um I think that's always the case um but I'm super proud of where we are today I don't think me seven years ago would have quite imagined being here so I think that there's uh, a lot to be proud of I think there's still a huge way to go um and every day is a new challenge but um yeah I'm very proud of our team that there's 12 of us which is might sound tiny but um it's a lot more than two of us Yeah, (laughs) Um, and and it speaks a little bit to our culture because um, we're a small lean team and we've just chosen to stay lean as much as we can. Um, We we all know each other, we all work together really well um, and it really does feel like a family. And so that's kind of culturally something that's been important to us. But yeah, we're 12 people, we're in about 10,000 grocery stores um, across the US. Um, We're distributed nationally. Um, we have great partnerships with large retailers like Walmart and Whole Foods and Aldi and Sprouts, and still, um, you know, our bread and butter, which is our amazing early supporters of independent stores, um, that helped us really kind of grow and scale. We have three different product lines now. Um, we started with one, added several seeds across the journey. Now we have three different product lines. So you know, you'll find us in lots of different parts of the grocery store, um, and we're kind of continuing to just scratch the surface I think that's the exciting thing is that I touched on this before but this is a long journey and you just are constantly hitting the next milestone and so um while I'm super proud of where we are today there's just so much ahead and um I think that uh it's exciting to continue on this road I'm still learning a lot um and now I just have the pleasure of doing it with Uh, supported by a group of team members who also have a lot more industry knowledge than I did when I started this show.
0: I love that for you. Gosh, what a journey. Exciting. (laughs) At the end of every episode, we ask a series of six quick questions, some of which we might have covered, some of which we might not have, but we ask them all the same. So question number one is, what's your why? Why do you wake up every day and put your energy into Pop and Bottle? Mm -hmm.
4: It's really two reasons, Um, I mean, there's more than two, but there's two that kind of really top the list. Um, One is, you know, the North star for this product and this brand is making a moment in your day a little bit better, a little bit healthier, a little bit more intentional, a little bit more mindful, um, a little bit more enjoyable. And, you know, us kind of cleaning up the coffee routine, that was the, the reason we started this. And now the goal is really to kind of make it more accessible. So we don't want it just to be in available to the small cluster of people that can benefit from it. We really believe that access to better, healthier products should be wider and broader. And so the why really is, how do we get this to scale to a point where we can put it in the hands of as many people that choose to, you know, choose to choose it? So that's kind of one big driver for why we want to grow the brand. Um, and the second is, for me, it's genuinely still so exciting to be building a brand that feels authentic to us. You know, it's something that we cooked up literally in our in our little kitchen, our little brainchild. And it's evolved, it's grown, but it still has the essence of, you know, the friendship story that we started with, the problem that we are trying to solve, the community that we are trying to build the experience that we were trying to create in the world that didn't exist and just spreading that authentic story through our brand and having it, you know, hopefully impact other people in a positive way in a small moment of joy. You know, we're not solving a huge problem, but we're solving a small thing that you do every day. That is really exciting to me and encouraging to me and something that kind of keeps me going on the journey.
0: I love that. Question number two is what's been your favourite marketing moment so far?
4: I think the most substantial for us was just the realisation, and I I talked about this already, but it was a realisation that we could have our product do the work for us and that our sales and marketing could kind of work hand in hand to grow the brand. And so that first Whole Foods launch that I talked about and seeing seeing that sales opportunity as a billboard, that was really kind of the piece that helped me understand how powerful that real estate was and is. Um, And how focusing on the distribution was really like, was really the marketing moment that we needed to kind of keep us going. It had an organic sell through once we got it on shelf because of the strength of the products and the brand. And those were the marketing moments that we really kind of decided to go deep in. Um, So that one launch that was meaningful from a sales perspective, but it was really meaningful from a marketing
0: perspective as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Love that. Question number three is what's your go-to business resource that you can recommend, whether it's a book or a podcast or a newsletter that you're subscribed to? You
4: know, I, there's so much content that I love and I, I wish I had more time for to, for all of it. Um, but I really do like, so one book I really read recently that, I, that really resonated for me was Atomic Habits and, you know, this concept that we really are our habits. And the reason I really love it is because it's so everyday, you know, it's when you think about goal setting and you think about uh, milestones and, and where you want to be, it's so zoomed out, it's almost unachievable. But when you think about your day, you control it, it's your time and it's just really a collection of habits, a collection of things you do, a collection of tasks, it's just process. And what I loved about this book is really this idea that you are your habits, who do you want to manifest? Do you, do you see yourself as a healthy person? If you see yourself as a healthy person, when you're making that next choice, what would a healthy person do? Choose that habit. And suddenly after doing that habitually or ritualistically for a few days in a row, you're doing the habits of a healthy person. Suddenly you become a healthy person. I think that's really powerful. I love that book. I loved kind of thinking about it with our business in mind because it's described as habits in the book but really you know the other lens of it is rituals you know we're in the business of rituals a coffee ritual a tea ritual and so there's just something cool about you know you are your rituals so um what rituals do you want to manifest uh and you know how do you make your life a little bit more when how do you go where you want to go by changing the rituals in your life
0: this is a great segue into question number four, which is how do you win the day and what are your rituals and habits that keep you feeling happy and successful and motivated? <laughs> this is, I think this is like the, at this stage of my life, this is
4: kind of the most powerful way of winning the day is by saying no. <laughs> and sometimes. Sometimes the measure of a successful day for me is how many things did I say no to today? Um, and the reason I say that is because our time is just the most valuable resource that we have. And there are so many opportunities to say yes to so many things, You know, whether it's a retail opportunity that maybe it doesn't make sense, whether it's a meeting that you love to do, but it just isn't the right priority for that day prioritization and what to say yes to and what to say no to is just so key to getting to where you want to go and for me it's really hard I love to say yes to people it's really hard to say no and that's just a culture of training that I've had to build inside of me and I'm still working on today um, but yeah I think a successful day for me is one where I've set some boundaries I've made some decisions on prioritization and I've said no to a bunch of things that were hard to say no to god I really resonate with
0: that <laughs> I need to be better <laughs> at, at boundaries <laughs> question number five is what's been your worst money mistake in building the business and how much did it cost you oh okay um we've had some real doozies so <laughs> feel free to share my gosh yeah
4: gosh um I probably so many things um we've definitely done things that just weren't the right time. I think we invested in PR at a stage. Yeah, you know, Here's my example. It. it might not be the most exciting, but we invested in PR, expensive PR at one point at a stage, it just didn't make any sense for us as a business because we had no distribution. <laughs> so um, it was something that we absolutely should do and would have been fantastic to do. But when you're so tiny and national PR doesn't make sense because nobody in the other part of the country can can find your product and you don't sell online um it was just kind of wrong prioritization at the wrong time and so while it was very worthwhile at the right time it's just it was
0: not worthwhile at the wrong time so um yeah that would be one example Mm, and I think that's such an important one especially for PR because PR, you can also get really caught up in the ego of wanting to see yourself, but then if it's not really driving meaningful results, it really can be a money waster. And it can also just be a money waster if you have, you you know, you hire the wrong people to help you with that piece as well. So yeah, great, great bit of learning there. (laughs) And question number (laughs) six, last question. What is just a crazy story you can share from building your business that is good, bad, or ugly? Ah, let's see, um, there's definitely been some ugly moments. I have a
4: really ugly one actually that I can share, which I will never forget. Um, everyone survived, no one was no one was hurt, everyone survived. So we live to tell the tale. Um, this is probably in the first year or 18 months of our business. Um, we had this beautiful branded, we invested in a branded refrigerated vehicle, a refrigerated van it had and bottle on it we'd see it drive on the highway it was exciting and it would it was our delivery van and um it would track products up and down california and i got a call early morning one day from our driver um who when i asked the call i thought it was april fools because i just couldn't believe what he was, what he was telling me um he, he gave me a call and he said hey i'm just um i'm on the side of the highway i just pulled up and the van is in flames um and and uh I I thought he was joking until he sent me pictures uh, to my phone of our pop and bottle we thought oh my god is this a metaphor for what's gonna happen with our business our beautiful black van with pop and bottle branding up in flames the logo up in flames The brand up in flames all the product inside it up in flames um it was dealt with everyone was safe but we drove out to uh to kind of Look at our vehicle that we poured money into that we got branded. And um, it was just a very low moment. Um, it was all our product for a week, a week of sales. It was this vehicle that we that you know, we didn't have another one. This was our only one. Um, and suddenly it was a huge setback in the business. We didn't have any product, we'd lost our vehicle, it was like so stabilizing at the time. Um, and it was just one of those moments where you're like well do we have a business tomorrow because we don't we've just lost a ton of stuff we had to go through an insurance claim um that was not easy it, it was just it was just a crazy it was just a crazy time um but it was one of those moments when you realize that you have so much strength inside you you know and you you figure it out yes your phone problems and you figure out a rental um a late night production session, calling our retailers to explain what happened, asking for some extra time to deliver. Um and we figured it out. But yeah, it was it was one of the what's it was an ugly moment.
0: That is full on. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a crazy one. That's a that's a crazy story. <laughs> oh my gosh. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with Pop and Bottle and sharing all the learnings and the crazy stories. Gosh, I'm like in awe of what you've built. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been super fun to talk to you.